day to have this opportunity to worship God, to spend the day together. If you're uh, disappointed that Nathan and Emily and family are not here uh, with us, my family and I may be doubly so. Uh, they were supposed to stay with us this weekend. We are looking forward to that. We certainly understand. I wish them well and a speedy recovery. But no matter what the circumstances are, I'm always uh, excited, always appreciate the opportunity to study God's Word uh, with you, even when that's not the plan. I um, hope that's not abundantly clear here in a moment that it wasn't the plan for me to speak uh, this Sunday. But fortunately, I've obviously been studying First and Second Peter for several months now and doing a series on living as an exile. And we've talked about the sub-themes within that. We've studied separation, the theme of holiness. We've talked recently about submission, which is kind of the surprising theme of the book, our response to suffering, our response because we've been born again, because we're a part of being holy is to take our freedom in Christ and go back into subjection in humble, submissive service to our authorities under the ultimate authority of God. And I've been saying within that, the context of this book is suffering and been bringing that in, weaving that in repeatedly. That's the context of what's going on here, the suffering they were experiencing. And now I want to focus specifically on that theme. I had tentatively planned on this maybe being one final part, and with one or two days to take my research material, and I know I needed to get it down to about 3% of the amount of pages I had. (laughs) I realized that was going to be impossible and uh, that I had enough material in these epistles that probably needed to be more than, than one part. So it uh, might be two parts, might be three parts. This morning we're going to talk about why we suffer, and then we'll talk about later how we respond to suffering. But what I want to say up front, if you're not an elect exile, that's who the audience is. If you're not an elect exile, if you're not aware If you don't understand that you're in exile, if you don't understand your exile status, you won't get this. It won't make sense. You you can't accept it. So hopefully if we're struggling with these things, maybe it will awaken us to our exile orientation. If you want a good theology on suffering, I would encourage you to study the epistles of Peter. Word suffering, various words for suffering found approximately 15 times in 1 Peter alone. So we have instruction not only on why we suffer, but also how to live in a hostile, adverse, painful environment and situation. And so what I want to say up front before we begin to explore possible reasons why we suffer as elect exiles, as Christians, I want you to notice what he said in 1 Peter 4 verse 12. This is a text that we're going to spend more time on when we talk about how We respond to suffering. I believe we're given a blueprint, an outline by the Holy Spirit, a methodology for how to respond to suffering. But notice he says in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange, not unexpected for us to suffer as Christians. Now it might be strange to us because we're Americans, And why we need to heed this admonition and prepare ourselves, because I think we would be taken by surprise. (laughs) It's not our history. But if you look at the history of Christianity, and even around the world today, and in this context, certainly in the first century, this was not strange. Be prepared to be forearmed 
To be forewarned is to be forearmed, and that's why Jesus, Peter, Paul, forewarn us, watch, be ready. Jesus emphasizes there's no reason for a Christian to be blindsided by Satan, to be ignorant of Satan's devices. Part of the orientation process for Christians in the first century included teaching on the fact that when you follow Christ, you will follow Him into suffering. Can you imagine that? When we study with people and do five parts with people, can you imagine teaching the theology of suffering? (laughs) And so I think when it tells us, don't be surprised, don't be taken off guard, I think implicitly within that is admonition to have a deep, true theology before you find yourself in the fire, in the fog of war. When you're still objective, when you're still thinking clearly and soberly, And in touch with reality, we need to ask these questions, why? And how do I respond? We need to do that in advance. Understand these truths, that if the king suffered, so must his subjects, verse 13. Judgment begins at the house of God with Christians to test us, to prove us that we're genuine, not counterfeit, to refine us, we're going to talk about. And so it's God's will. He permits it. He allows it at times for us to suffer, to strengthen us for His glory and for our eternal good. And so if I know these truths up front before the fiery trial, I might be upset. I might be angry at sin, at wrongdoing when it comes. I might be grieving and weeping over tremendous pain and tremendous loss, but I will not be surprised. I will not be taken off guard. I won't lose heart. I won't lose faith. And so related to this concept, I want to also address this controversy on the presence of evil, pain, and suffering in the existence of God. Because one of the most frequently... Frequent arguments against God's existence by atheists and unbelievers is evil, pain, and suffering. Here's the argument. If God is omnipotent, He's all-powerful, and if God is perfect in goodness, He's all-loving, then He should be moved to intervene and prevent evil, pain, and suffering. And so if He doesn't, He's either not all-powerful, He can't do anything about it, or He's not all-loving, He doesn't want to do anything about it. That's the argument. Why do bad things happen to good people? And the truth is, we know there's no none righteous, no, not one. But we're going to look at some possible answers to that question. But I want to address atheism, evil, pain, and suffering leading us into unbelief. I want to address this argument first. I would flip that argument and say that evil, pain, and suffering actually is one of the main evidences for God's existence, what we refer to as the moral argument for God's existence. Premise one, if objective moral values exist, then God exists. You don't get law without a lawgiver. And so if we recognize there's moral law, where'd it come from? You don't get law without a lawgiver. So premise two, objective moral values exist. We recognize that. Even in prison, there are some things that are objectively wrong, childed by, by everyone. We have this within us, this innate realization of morality. Where did it come from? rest of creation does not possess that. Where did it come from? So the conclusion is God exists. William Lane Craig described this argument when he wrote, I think that evil, paradoxically, actually proves the existence of God. My argument would go like this. If God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. Evil exists, therefore, objective moral values exist. That is to say, some things are really evil. 
Therefore, God exists. Thus, although evil and suffering at one level seem to call into question God's existence on a deeper level, a deep, more fundamental level, they actually prove God's existence. C.S. Lewis wrote about this same thing when he described his journey from unbelief to faith. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust, but how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, the whole of reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. See, atheism cannot define evil, can't talk about it. There is no such thing as evil or moral, right and wrong, or ought or ought not, if survival of the fittest is true. Recognize there's evil, then there's good. That's, that's God. That's why being forewarned and forearmed with these evidences, Peter writes in his second epistle about eyewitness testimony, which is compelling when trying a case. Earwitness testimony, we heard the voice of God endorse His Son. And because of that, we have the prophetic word confirmed. Those Old Testament prophecies have been fulfilled in our seeing and in our hearing, have come to light, have been realized in the actions of Christ. And so being forewarned and forearmed with this theology on suffering, with these evidences that God does exist, the Bible is God's Word, Jesus is God's Son, is so important that we do that in advance of the fiery trial that we know that my God is real, my God is true, and my experience with evil, pain, and suffering doesn't change that reality. doesn't prove or change what I believe and I know is true. It doesn't turn that into a fable. What you're holding on to in your suffering is not a cunningly devised fable. It's real. It's true. And so if I know that up front, then if I choose to walk away from that, if I choose to let go, I know deep down, if I quit believing in God, that would be the most irrational, illogical, blind thing I've ever done in my life. And so as we begin to explore the reasons why we might suffer, I want to mention briefly a few that are very obvious that we already know about. You know the, probably the most common reason we suffer is because we do dumb things. Our actions. Peter talks about that. Suffering for doing evil. Beaten for your faults because you're not submitting to authority. They stumble. They suffer because they don't obey Jesus. That's the ultimate cause of ultimate suffering. They suffer for doing evil. Don't suffer as a murderer, as a thief, as an evildoer, as a meddler. That's why we suffer. God created us with free will. And when we exercise that free will, there are consequences. There are scars physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. Got this scar from running into the, my preschool building, actually. I got another scar from running into a wall in our house. I got this scar from playing hockey, this from playing football. Many of you know I got this scar from playing basketball. We have many eyewitnesses to that. I want to tell you the most painful scars of all are the ones you can't see. 
When we violate moral law, when we violate natural law, there are consequences. Those same laws that bless us, that allow us to make discoveries because there's order, there's law. Those same laws that work to our benefit, work to our detriment when we violate them. If I fall off this stage, I'm going to experience the consequence of gravity. If I walk in front of your car as you drive off in the parking lot, I'm going to experience the consequence of matter in motion. If you play with fire, talk a lot about that as a fire protection engineer, if you're not careful with fire, that same fire that heats your home, that cooks your food, will burn you. And if God regularly intervened, interrupted, suspended those laws... It would make everyday life impossible. It would result in utter chaos. He maintains natural law and free human free will. And so you know what Peter says? You know what the theme is? Don't let that reason be the reason you're suffering. Suffer for doing good. This is the worst suffering of all. Sometimes, though, we suffer because others exercise their free will. And there are consequences. There are scars from that. We see that they're suffering in this context because others are blaspheming them, opposing them, persecuting them. Jesus is the ultimate example of that, who committed no sin. He suffered unjustly, the just for the unjust. And that happens. We see children who suffer for the decisions of their parents. Maybe we're on drugs, and it's tragic. It's heartbreaking. We see generations and nations of people suffering from decisions made a long time ago. We go to third world countries like India who are starving physically and spiritually and suffering physically and spiritually. Why? Because of Hinduism and false religion and false doctrine like reincarnation that's teaching them you can't eat the cow because that's your great-grandfather reincarnated. You're going to suffer if you don't eat beef. Somebody says, you know, it's unjust. It's unfair to suffer for the wrongs of others. You know what? We're not promised complete justice and fairness in this life, are we? That's in the life to come. And you can either be a victim or you can be a victor. We also suffer because we live in a fallen, flooded world. In 2 Peter 3, Peter's addressing these scoffers who are saying everything's continuing like it always has. Nothing's changed from creation. Uniformitarianism. Alive and well today, evolution, everything's the same. It's constant process. No, catastrophism, the flood. Things have changed. They're willingly ignorant. They're choosing to forget. They're choosing to be dumb. The world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. We don't live in a garden created very good with access to the tree of life. We live in a world that's been devastated and deluged by the effects of our sin. Our world and our bodies are ravaged by entropy. Who's to blame for that? God didn't cause that, we did. Sin robbed us of our original garden paradise and is responsible for the flood and the effects, the consequences, the natural disasters that continue to occur as a result. And so those are three of the obvious reasons why we suffer. I want to focus, though, on the good reasons we suffer uniquely as Christians. Why we suffer as elected. That's why everybody suffers. Why do we suffer as Christians? Notice what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, In this you rejoice, speaking of their salvation, their hope, though now for a little while, if necessary. You have been grieved by various trials so that, when you see the word so and that, it means the reason, the explanation is going to follow, the tested genuineness of your faith, 
more precious than gold may, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says in chapter 3, you suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. Chapter 4, you suffer according to God's will. Suffering is the proving ground for what we believe. A faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. And so evidently God finds it necessary for us to suffer. I think about Jesus. I think about Job, Peter, Paul. I've talked previously about the value of a thorn, 2 Corinthians 12. A precious, precious passage if you're suffering, especially physically. Paul says, here's what I've learned the value of a thorn, the power of a thorn. Why do I have this thorn? You know what he starts with and he ends with? It bookends the reason to humble me. Let your suffering humble you, to keep me from being conceited, to keep me from being conceited. He sent me a thorn in the flesh. And notice this amazing truth. God uses Satan against Satan. Humbling Paul was not the work of Satan, it's the work of God. God will take what Satan's doing, use it against him. Satan's trying to use this to bring out the worst in Paul. God will use it to bring out the best in you. God uses the father of lies and pride to deliver us from the power of lies and pride and to bring us closer to God. I pleaded with God. His prayer life, his relationship was, became closer. He began to realize where his strength came from, his power came from, that God's strength is perfected in my weakness. It glorifies him in my weakness. My suffering gives the gospel an audience it might not have had otherwise. We're going to talk about that here in a moment. And notice, Paul said, I pled with God three times to remove this suffering. And how did God respond? Not by decreasing the pain, decreasing the circumstance, but by increasing the grace to increase the trust. Doesn't promise to remove the problem. He does promise sufficient grace. Not always in the form that we ask for. <laughs> and here's the question. If we didn't have these thorns, if we didn't have this suffering, these fiery trials, would we truly know and experience that God's grace is sufficient? That's the value of a thorn. Doesn't mean that God wills the suffering, the evil, the pain, the sin. Certainly not. But God will use Satan against Satan. For His glory and for our eternal good. So, is suffering, can it have any meaning and purpose? Even atheists will admit, some suffering is necessary. That would mean beneficial. Take children to get shots. Pain sends us to the doctor for a cure. You don't realize you have a problem, sometimes without pain. So, if suffering today results in glory tomorrow, would suffering not be a blessing? As the saying goes, who can mind the journey if the road leads home? Tragedy can bring out the best in people. It develops character. It helps us to develop traits like heroism, bravery, love, self-sacrifice. Those traits thrive in less than ideal circumstances, don't they? God has taken this fallen, flooded world, used it against, He's created a perfect environment. Think about this. A perfect environment for soul-making, for soul and eternity preparation, where we refocus. Sometimes we don't look up to God till we're flat on our backs. We learn these lessons through suffering. This world is not my home. I'm an elect exile at war for my soul. My time is temporary. Quit wasting it, Peter says in chapter 4. These lessons, suffering, life, the great teacher experience that propel us to prepare for the afterlife. 
So the problem of evil, pain, and suffering in regards to our faith is resolved, right? Well, now atheists pivot to say pointless, <laughs> unnecessary suffering proves God doesn't exist. Who gets to decide what's pointless and unnecessary? Who knows that? Tim Keller writes about this, tucked away within the assertion that the world is filled with pointless evil is a hidden premise, namely that if evil appears pointless to me, then it must be pointless. This reasoning is, of course, fallacious just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there can't be one. Again, we see lurking within supposedly hard-nosed skepticism an enormous faith in one's own cognitive faculties. If our minds can't plumb the depths of the universe for good answers to suffering, well then, there can't be any. This is blind faith of a high order. Reminds me of what God told Job when he went... Put Job in his plate. Where were you when I made this? When I made you? Do you understand how this works? How this works? How... What you don't know, what you don't see, God knows more. God knows best. God sees the big picture. God knows us better than ourselves. He knows the future. He knows the consequence of every action, of every outcome. Who's in the best position to decide how much suffering's permitted for His glory and our eternal good? The omniscient creator of the universe who created you and created me. That's who. So what does Peter tell a suffering audience? What do you say to someone who's suffering? Well, what you don't say is what Job's friend said. <laughs> what do you say? Well, he begins with praising God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Praise God. And that's exactly how Job responded. First thing Job did when it was all... Ta- Blessed be the name of the Lord. God is still God. David did the same when he lost his child. I'm going to worship God, and that'll take the bitterness out of your suffering. And he anchored his hope in their future. Just their present experience, their future in heaven with God. Then he zooms out to the big picture. He doesn't minimize their pain, but he invites them to see what God is doing in it, what God can do in it. Don't make light of the pain, but make much of God and much of His purposes. And as we begin to do that, pain begins to lose its crippling power. Yes, it still hurts, but we have purpose, we have meaning, we have something greater to compare it to. So God's will, God's plan for our suffering is that it be varied. A wide range of trials, wide range of experiences to make us stronger, to make us well-rounded. The word for varied here means multicolored. No matter what color your day is, it is well with my soul. but they be temporary. Peter says multiple times, you're going to suffer for a little while. And it doesn't always feel that way, does it? (laughs) Suffering never feels like a little while. But compared to your inheritance in heaven, that bad day, that bad week, month, year, life, in the grand scheme, it's one in an infinity. He wills that they sometimes be grievous, that they're heavy, that we experience real, authentic, Grief, which is healthy, therapeutic, but we experience it differently than an unbelieving world. He wills that our suffering refine our faith. We saw that that's the reason, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. When gold's refined, the impurities rise to the top. It separates the counterfeit, the fake, from what's real. So it is with genuine faith. That's the gold. You want to know what the gold is? Genuine faith. 
real faith. Job said, when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. And he did. Trials, testing, suffering can refine us from purge us from impurities in our faith in God, our trust in God's promises. So that's richer, it's fuller, it's deeper. Strips us of those things that are holding us back completely from God and from heaven. And if we're willing to suffer and hold on to God in trials, we're more likely to hold on to Him in temptation. Christians pass through the refining fire not because God hates us, but because God hates sin and God loves us so much, He will permit pain if it will spare us from sin and spare us from hell. They say that the eastern goldsmiths would leave gold in the fire so long they could see their face in it. Perhaps God will leave us in the fire so that the face of Christ can be seen in us. Again, Satan will use suffering. He wants to use suffering to bring out the worst in you. God will use it to bring out the best in you. But we have free will. It's our choice. And so the question is, will you let the fire burn you or purify you? Why does Peter go on to tell them, here's what you're experiencing? You haven't seen him, but you love him. You're believing him. You keep rejoicing no matter what. You're receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation. Why would you tell him, hey, here's what you're doing? Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for the obvious. What's he doing here? I think he's reminding them this is what real faith does. This is what real Christians do. They keep believing. They keep loving. They keep trusting. They keep rejoicing no matter what's happening, and they keep receiving salvation. That's what real Christians do, and you're a real Christian, right? It's necessary so that it's rewarded. Necessary that our faith is refined by fiery trials the way fire refines gold. And the result of that, the purpose of that fire is on the other side of the fire. The gold is praised, it's admired, it's glorified. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. We can hardly believe it. I can only imagine you come out on the other side of the terrible loss, the terrible pain, the terrible life that threatened your faith, that made you ask, why, where's God, what's happening? And you held on to Him, you held on to your faith, and years later you look back and you can clearly see the providence. You can see that where you are, who you are today is a product in part of what you went through then. You didn't throw away your faith. You didn't throw away your God. He became more precious to you, more real to you. You came through the hell the fiery trials, and you maintained your integrity like Job. That'll be praised. That'll be rewarded by God in the end. And so be patient. Wait on the Lord, and you'll see a more beautiful rainbow than you've ever seen before. And so the ultimate reason of everything is to glorify God. In in life and death, whatever we're doing, in, in the process to bring others to Christ. That's the context, submission, everything we've talked about. God glorifying conversion. 1 Peter 4.16, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. One of the best ways you can do that is to continue to have hope and joy when everything else is gone. And that shows, that proves to yourself, to the world, that your hope, your joy is not anchored, is not rooted in those things. It's rooted and anchored in God. That, that's the reason. Christ's suffering are suffering to bring us, to bring others to God. Arm yourself with that purpose. For, here's the reason, Peter is preparing us to suffer for doing good. The question is not if, but when, and the ultimate question is how we respond, going to glorify God and cause others to ask of the reason of the hope that's within us. Our exposure to pain should expose the world to our hope. 
to our Savior. I just want to say, you can't do that. You won't do that if you respond with anger, bitterness, hate, reviling, threatening, evil, retaliation. Our suffering should proclaim that there is good news even in the bad news. Faith like that stuns the world around us. We still have joy, not just after the suffering of the world, we have joy in the suffering, not over the suffering, in the suffering. We can still rejoice, not because we're looking around at our circumstances, but because we're looking ahead to the future with Him. A hopeless world does not have a category for that type of hope. It defies natural explanation, and deep down the world knows it's supernatural. They see the beauty and power of Christ in our storm, our struggle, our battle, our desert. When we hold on to our faith, when we hold on to our Savior through the cancer, through the loss, through the insults, through it all, we magnify and glorify the surpassing worth of knowing and experiencing Christ. We proclaim to the world He is worth everything. So the question we need to ask when we ask why is who might find God in our suffering? Peter isn't just advocating in verse 15 we commonly talk about. I talk about this apologetic verse, give a defense. It's not just intellectual. That's certainly involved. Give a reason, reason, rational, evidence-based faith. Prepare your mind. Intellectually, we do that, but he's also talking about our heart. Apologetics doesn't just flow from your mind, it has to flow also from your heart. A person who is sanctified, put Christ first in their life, in their heart, can't help but witness to that to other people. Consider again his audience. Scattered, suffering Christians throughout present-day Turkey, experiencing opposition, about to experience even more fiery trials in they're, because they're choosing daily to live as an elect exile, and the reward for that decision is to be insulted, slandered, persecuted. And that suffering became a massive platform for their hope. Why were they asking about their hope? What causes people to ask about our hope? When will people, what type of hope must we possess for us to have these evangelistic opportunities? They were asking because their hope was unique, it was different. It was living. It was evident. They had hope when others wouldn't. They rejoiced when others wouldn't, even when treated unjustly. It was strange. It was surprising. It invited curiosity because it was so counterintuitive. And it implies the fact that they were asking, where does that come from? The fact that they were asking and ashamed implies they were not hoping in the same things the world was. Safety, security, health, wealth, approval, Verse 14 seems to imply they were asking because their hope was fearless. You're not afraid of their threats. You're not troubled. They weren't troubled by troubles. Hope is the ground. It's the basis for fearlessness. We saw that last time in chapter 3. Holy women hoped in God. Therefore, they're not afraid of anything that's frightening. And it empowered them not only to live fearlessly, but to live graciously. Notice the word zealous, righteous, good, hope-fueling good deeds. That's the emphasis. That's the theme. They're not just avoiding. They're not just abstaining. Certainly elect exiles do that. But you're not going to impress anyone. You're not going to impress the world by simply abstaining. 
but by doing good. Especially to those who do bad. They're asking because they're gracious when they should be anxious. And when they asked, they were met with gentleness, meekness, respect. How they shared their hope said as much about them and as about their hope as anything else. And I just want to observe, maybe we're not as evangelistic and effective in our evangelism as we should be because we're not as hopeful as we should be. It's not just about intellectually being prepared. Certainly, we need to do that. I emphasize that a lot. Doctrinally, apologetics. But a lot of this preparation is not just intellectual, it's your heart. And if we don't have hope like we should, you know what's going to happen? We're going to see it as evangelism as just a duty to defend our doctrine and not an opportunity, a privilege to proclaim our hope. We can defend our doctrine, we can't defend our hope. So Peter's preparing his audience to suffer. Arm yourself be forewarned, be forearmed, how? Notice the reasons given. Here's how, here's why. Be ready to suffer for doing good. First reason, for, because, Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. That's the ultimate reason. Christ suffered for you. The ultimate answer to evil, pain, and suffering, in unbelief as a result of evil, pain, and suffering, is that God did not exempt Himself, did not exempt His Son from the greatest evil, pain, and suffering and injustice there ever was. It was completely unfair. And we ask, why God? Only in bad times, right? That's the only time I ask that, why God? But we don't ask, why God, when we're blessed, do we? Why'd you give me this family? Why'd you give me this church family? Why'd you give me this job? Why'd you give me this opportunity? Why did you give me salvation? Why did you give me your son? How could you let that happen? Remember Christ defeated death to bring us to God, to close the gap, to remove the enmity. Why would you become a Christian in this context if the sales pitch was things could get a lot worse for you? You might die twice, once to yourself, once as a martyr. Sign me up for that. You know why they were signing up for that in record numbers? You know why the gospel thrives in that environment and not always in ours? Peter says salvation. Because eternal life, eternal safety, eternal security is infinitely more valuable. And the suffering and death of Christ is what accomplished that. He died for our sins, which separates me from God, which is far worse than suffering for righteousness' sake. He died the just for the unjust. He was a substitute. He took my place, the judgment I deserved, even though He is completely innocent. He died once for all. It was sufficient. It worked. That's the gospel. And how does this truth, how does this argument comfort me in my suffering? Because Satan tempts us to interpret suffering as the abandonment of God. You're all alone. God is not with you, and that cannot be the farthest thing from the truth. He's using it, He's working it to bring us through Christ's suffering, through our suffering, closer to Him. Remember the days of Noah, and this is a controversial, challenging verse we've talked about previously. It's my conviction in harmonizing it with what the Bible teaches. You don't get second chances. Christ is not preaching to people in Hades after they've died. They don't have a second chance. He preached to these people who are now in Hades, waiting final judgment and sentencing, 
When did he preach to them? When they were disobedient in the days of Noah? Christ and His Spirit, through the preaching of Noah, had preached to these people. Just like Peter tells us in chapter 1, verse 11, that the Spirit of Christ was in the prophets when they prophesied about His suffering and subsequent glories. The Spirit of Christ and the prophets, the Spirit of Christ and Noah in His preaching. But how does this comfort me in my suffering? Because it's better to obey Christ and suffer for it in this life temporarily than to disobey Christ and suffer for it in prison forever. And the floodwaters that brought judgment in the days of Noah reminds Peter of baptism. Here's the next admonition. Remember your baptism. Scoffers, unbelievers, those opposing faith were lost. Who does Christ's suffering save? Who does Christ's death save? Those who are baptized. That's what Peter says. And I know that's not popular. I know many have wrestled this text to avoid the clear import of what it's saying. It's saying that it was the dividing line between the saved and the damned. And people today say it's just a post-salvation symbol that has nothing to do with that. Saved by water. The Greek word dia, by, means through, via, medium. That's the medium God used to rescue Noah and his family from the lost. What the medium God uses to bring a penitent believer to a place of safety, bringing us to God. Notice the same word, by the resurrection of Christ. Through the medium of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Who saves us? Jesus. So according to Peter, your salvation can be by the resurrection of Jesus and still require you to be baptized. Accept it. Obey the gospel. Not earning anything in that act. Not doing anything in that act. But an expression of your faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We're saved by the resurrection of Jesus, which is a term known as synecdoche, a figure of speech known as synecdoche, which means that the part is put for the whole. When he says you're saved by the resurrection, that includes the death and the burial. Resurrection is not possible without death and the burial. So what he's saying is you're saved by the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be God, we saw that verse, who has caused us to be born again by His great mercy, by the resurrection of Jesus. Same exact phrase. You're saved, you're born again by the gospel. When you obey the gospel. New Testament consistently emphasizes we're saved by the death, burial, and resurrection, the work of Christ. That's not the question. The question is when do we access the benefits of that? This is how... This is, what, this is the basis, the when, is when you're baptized. It's not the water, it's the blood. When you access the death, burial, and resurrection, Romans 6, Colossians 2, through baptism, by obeying the gospel. So what in the world does that have to do to encourage me in my suffering? Because we remember you've passed from death and judgment to life with Christ Judgment is past tense. So the present suffering you experience if you're suffering as a Christian for doing good is not condemnation. Christ took that upon Himself. And our baptism is a constant reminder that eternal pain and suffering has been averted. Praise God. Blessed be the God according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. That's great news. And finally, he says, he's gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. He's sovereign. He's omni. He's in control. And I want to tell you this morning, God knows all the answers even when you don't. 
Sometimes we don't have all the answers this side of heaven. And ultimately, all these answers, while helpful in forewarning us, forearming us not to lose faith, not to lose heart, God is real, God exists. But often in the suffering, the answers are somewhat hollow. I mean, does it really matter why? I mean, it's good to know that it's making you better, that God can work in it, that it can be for His glory and your salvation. But if we dwell on why for too long, it'll destroy us. Eventually, we have to change questions from why. And it's not wrong to ask why. God's Son asked, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But eventually, we have to change questions to how. How do I respond to this in a way that will glorify God, maintain my integrity and my faith, and lead others to Christ? And that's what we intend to talk about next time. As we offer an invitation, if you're suffering because of your sin, the answer to that is the suffering of Christ for your sins. And you access the benefit of that, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus by being baptized. Water baptism. Peter could not be any more clear. Maybe you're here and you've done that, and as a Christian you're still suffering because of your sin. You need to repent of. Maybe you're suffering for no fault of your own, the decisions of others, because you live in a fallen, flooded world. And you need encouragement, help with a deep theology that's rooted and grounded, this living hope. To hold on, no matter what you're going through. Hold on, there's a, there's a reward at the end. You know the theme we see in Peter's writings? Talked about the prophecies of Christ. Suffering, subsequent glory. Suffering, grace, glory. And we've been promised all of them <laughs> as Christians. And I want to tell you, the grace and the glory is so worth it. If you're experiencing suffering, but you want to experience the grace and the glory, the Lord invites you to come as we stand and sing.